You're listening to Beat Autoimmune and Thrive, the podcast all about reversing and preventing autoimmune conditions so you can live your most vibrant life as soon as possible. We talk about autoimmune root causes, actionable solutions, and inspirational healing stories. I'm Palmer Kippola, and I used to have MS. Today, I'm an author, a speaker, a functional medicine certified health coach, a pickleball player, and nature lover who's helped thousands of people reclaim their health and their best lives. Let's dive into this episode. I am so pleased to be joined by Hillary Nye today. Hillary is a woman who has quite a story. She reversed Sjogren's, Raynaud's, Hashimoto's, lupus, undifferentiated connective tissue disease, arthritis, depression, insomnia, the list is long. And, you know, we're going to get into diagnoses and whether or not the words matter all that much, because at the end of the day, I view all of these, this collection of syndromes or disorders as conditions, because as you'll see in Hillary's story, most of these, if not all autoimmune conditions can be reversed based on how you live your life, the condition with which you live your life. So let me introduce you to Hillary. She is an intellectual property and technology attorney, and she serves as general counsel of Haya, a startup that helps protect consumers from spam so needed. She's been practicing law for 25 years, mainly in the Seattle area, primarily representing technology clients from the very large to the very small. So Hillary, with this background and need for brain power, who has time for autoimmune issues? Oh, no kidding. (laughs) And thank you so much for having me and, and talking with me. And more importantly, thank you for your book that came at such a critical in my life. So I hope others are similarly inspired and get this sort of education so that they too can can really start to reframe their health and reframe their condition and start thinking more more powerfully about uh, the choices that they have and feel a bit less powerless, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. This is all about empowerment. This is why I get up each and every day. It's Mm -hmm. why I wrote the book for somebody like me who didn't have access to a book, you know, when I was in the throes of having MS and wanted a guidebook. Uh, But thank you so much for your willingness to come on and talk. And I know you've already shared your healing journey in written form. I think helping make it come to life in the form of video can be so useful. Many people are more visual and auditory. So I just like having a full 3D version of that. And so let's, let's go back to the beginning. I always love to frame things by setting the context. You know, we all had childhoods and we know that autoimmunity doesn't just happen overnight. There is a lead up. What happens in childhood does not stay in childhood. So take us back to your upbringing. What was it like at a high level? So I was the um, first child of two very educated and smart people from the Midwest who uh, were in many ways bohemians and academics and uh, trying to stay out of the Vietnam War. Uh, We traveled a lot. Um, 
And my dad just kept getting additional degrees, I think, partly because he was curious, but mostly because I think he wanted to avoid the draft. Uh, that meant we, we, we traveled a lot. Uh, we lived in Boston. We lived in uh, Europe for a while. Uh, we lived in Minnesota. And then we finally settled down in the Seattle area when I was in kindergarten. Um, and at that point, my dad had... Well, the Vietnam War was over, so that was good news. And my dad had become a prosecutor with the King County uh, Prosecutor's Office. And we decided to move to this island called Vashon Island, which is in Puget Sound. And we got this little cabin on the south end. And at that point, um, that's when my siblings were born. So I, there's a bit of an age gap between uh, my younger siblings. And because my dad was working so hard uh, as a new prosecutor in Seattle, you know, and commuting by ferry, uh, it meant that there was a lot of time when it was just my mom and me and the kids, as we would call them. And so we uh, were there for the majority of, you know, my, my, I guess from my early kindergarten to third grade, roughly, Mm -hmm. uh, and then moved to a different part of the island uh, when my younger brother was born and he was born uh, when I was about 11. So, um, and, and I think that, uh, that those early years were interesting because it was a different time. It was a different time and place. Uh, you know, my mother was very uh, into health food and, uh, you know, that meant putting wheat germ on top of everything. And um, she, but she smoked and, and drank tab and uh, we put baby oil on our skins when we went out in the sun. Uh, but more importantly, and, and perhaps uh, at least for me, you know, we did live right in the Asarco plume, and Asarco was it, what it sounds like. It, it was an arsenic plant, and uh, you know, I remember we had really um, muddy yards because lawn didn't grow on the south end mm-hmm. of the island, and it just, but it kind of didn't resonate at the time. It was again a different time and a different place. This is in the seventies. And, uh, you know, this is at the same time, right, where people are, you know, playing on the monkey bars with, you know, paved, uh, you know, playgrounds. And, uh, you know, everybody was unsupervised walking home from school. So it was, again, a different time and place. But it did did build that sort of, as I look back in time, you know, you sort of pick up on some of these details and realize, well, yeah, that's that's kind of a setup for for getting sick later in time. Yeah, I, I can see a few a few nuggets in your story of, you know, having to be the adult before you're ready. You know, that's definitely in there. Um, living under this plume of arsenic, that is definitely part of a setup, potentially the things that fill our toxin buckets. We can't ever really be a hundred percent sure of all the things that go in there, but we, from pattern recognition, we can see the usual suspects again and again, the toxins and the stress. And one thing that you noted in your story was that because there was some conflict, obviously, you know, there's a lot of conflict in families often. And um, we adopt personality types in order to deal with the conflict. So talk a little bit about the personality types that you adopted to get through that conflict. Well, you know, it's unsurprisingly, right? You've got two parents who are 
uh, busy working because my mom also worked for a period of time. Uh, two young kids at home. Or two, I keep calling them the kids. I guess I was one too. So there were three of us, um, but two young younger kids at home and um, a dad that's working a lot. And um, my mom, I think, just needed a, a partner in a way. And I, I, I quite honestly relished that role. It made me feel special. It made me feel like we were best friends. And um, it's only in retrospect that you kind of look at that and say, well, maybe that's a little bit strange. Uh, but on the other hand, um, you know, it did, it did make it so I felt I needed to take care of everybody and yeah. take care of her, take care of my siblings. And when my dad was there, you know, he, I can fully understand now as an adult and certainly as an attorney that what he was doing was very stressful and hard. And so when he was home, um, he would be tired, he would be grouchy, he would drink. So if I could just kind of keep everybody calm, and keep, you know, okay, so I know that dad's going to get mad if the kitchen's dirty and mom is out with her, you know, uh, painting buddies and um, doing what he would consider to be a hobby, which actually she's a very talented artist. Uh, well, let me just set the scene so that um, everybody thinks everything's fine. So I'm going to solve for my mom. She's going to think dad cleaned the kitchen. Then I'll solve for my dad. He's going to think mom, you know, clean the kitchen and then everything will stay calm. And sometimes that worked. Sometimes it didn't. But it certainly uh, made me always uh, on edge. And always like thinking, okay, so how do I avoid a conflict? Because if a conflict did come up, things would get very stressful very quickly and things would escalate in ways that were more uncomfortable than just cleaning the kitchen. Yeah. So mom would need to leave and drive away. And I wasn't sure she'd come back. And so these were consequences for not having things under control that were more stressful than all the little things I could do to try to keep things sorted. Oh, and um, yeah, it, it, this was not a bad childhood. This was just a, a tense one. Um, and, you know, I, I, nobody asked me to take that position. It just seemed like the most logical thing to do to keep everything manageable. Yeah. And, and it is so common. And I want to just say again, how, happy I am that you are sharing this because it's not, it's not to cast aspersions on anyone. It's not to say this was bad or good. It's just, we are as children, we, we find ourselves in circumstances sometimes that we may not be ready for, or we may not know how to navigate, but what ends up happening is our stress response systems happen automatically. And so they get fired up. And so we're kind of always on scanning the environment for safety. That was me in my childhood. And there was oh, yeah. no, you know, I mean, so there, there's a toll that that takes. And then what I heard in your story was a level of people pleasing and oh, oh, becoming yeah. and the anxiety. perfect one, right? Always anxiety. Right. Always. And I remember um, being in elementary school and not being able to sleep at night. 
mm-hmm. uh, because I, they actually, my, my nickname from my family was the worry wart. Yeah. Because uh, I was always worried and I would worry about stupid things. I would worry about whether or not we had enough gas in the car, you yeah. know, whether or not we had um, paid our bills on time. Uh, and I remember uh, at one point, you're going to love this Palmer. You don't even know this part, but I, I remember uh, going to some sort of, um, you know, annual checkup sort of thing with this guy who just was probably 180 years old, at least seemed to be that way. And one of the things that he was asking me about was, you know, Hey, you're, um, you you know, you're, you're not sleeping. You, You don't go to sleep at night. It's, that's what I'm hearing from you. And, you know, you're really anxious because, so I'm just going to have your parents maybe think about giving you a shot of whiskey uh, when you're really uh, unable to sleep in the evenings. So, so that was the first really good medical advice. uh, (laughs) Uh, So there's that. Um, But, um, but people pleasing definitely. And actually it was, if if I think back on it, it was a great coping mechanism because it's a win, win, win. Yes. And if I did that at school, so I was like diligent at school. Oh, I mean, yeah. I, there was no way I was going to get a B plus mm-hmm. and an A minus was unacceptable. Uh, so, you know, I had to have good grades. I had to um, uh, make sure that uh, it, the house was clean and dinner was getting ready and that um you know, any of my own fears, anxieties uh, wouldn't pop out uh, in inappropriate ways. Yeah. I, I just, I feel, and I so resonate with what you've shared so far. I feel like you know, you could have called me in the middle of the night when you weren't sleeping because I was also suffering from insomnia. Didn't get the whiskey advice, but there was another part that you talked about where if you got sick, for example, if you got a cold or something like that, it was frowned upon in your family because you were, it was perceived as weakness, right? And it was the complaining, like, complaining. Mm -hmm. well, there were two different things. So uh, when I was in first grade, I had a really pretty bad hernia and had to get a hernia Mm -hmm. operation, which is kind of unusual for a little girl. Um, But uh, then I got another hernia and I might, I remember my mom saying, what is it about you? That why why do you have hernia? I mean, that's like how is it that you mm-hmm. get all these weird things? And so it felt shameful that I had a hernia, but I didn't have any control over having a hernia. I'm nine years old, um, and uh, and I remember even coming back from that operation and um, lying on the couch and having my parent. <laughs> parents both just be like, well, it's fixed now. So you should be up and about. And there was this feeling of, but I hurt and I can't sit up all the way, but I can't tell them that because I don't want to not be good. And I don't want to not be tough because there was also this sort of cultural sense that, Hey, you know, my, my mother's family came over uh, as refugees uh, for from World War II, 
And there was sort of this feeling that, hey, you can't complain. You've got a roof over your head. You've got plenty of food. It's warm. You're safe from predators and bombs. And, you know, until you've been in a situation like that, you really can't complain. And, you know, your aunt almost died from dysentery. And there's, you know, so many other worse things in the world that Mm -hmm. not being able to get it from the couch after a hernia operation is not something to complain about. And that sort of set the stage in some ways for me to feel like that would be another disappointment for me to be sick or for me to complain. And it would mean I wasn't perfect and that there was something shameful or bad about me because, um, you know, the, uh, there was just a sense that I should be able to tough it out. Yeah. I'm listening to this and I'm just feeling this compassion for this little girl, you know, which as adults, we people in as adults need to parent ourselves because we Mm -hmm. often didn't get the parenting that we wanted or needed because our parents came from situations where they had their own set of traumas. So this is just such a universal story, Hillary. I just want to, you know, acknowledge that, you were under so much pressure and stress as a child and it wasn't your fault. And and as an adult now though, I can look back and have so much empathy for my parents because it's, you think that they know what they're doing when you're a kid, but turns out, you know, my mom was what, 23 when she had me 24 and she almost, yeah, she was about 24. So as a, I, as a 24 year old, I didn't even know, you know, how to make myself a decent breakfast, let alone raise a child. Right. So right. It is the beautiful thing about getting older is having some more empathy for yeah. those who raised you. And then, oh gosh, now that I've got my own sons, I'm like, oh, please have empathy for me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. Well, let's move on because now we've got a really good sense of the upbringing. And I want to get into when you started to feel symptoms and the way I understand it, you went off to law school with your brilliant GPA and smarts. So off you went to law school. What happened? You started feeling bad. Yeah. So, well, law school was a lot more pressure um, than I'd had in the past because I was really used to being able to almost crack a book the night before a final, memorize it, memorize it, memorize it, and then just regurgitate it and get an A. Um, And law school was the first time where I was with a bunch of smart people who also had better work habits probably than I did. Um, and, um, I, because I'd always worked in undergrad, always worked, uh, during school, I was also working while I was in law school, a lot of it having to to do with, gosh, I don't want to put more pressure on my parents to have to spend more money on me and, you know, education. So I was, uh, working and realizing I actually had to study and, um, I was getting B's. I never had a B. I got, I I remember even getting my first C on a test and I almost crumbled. Uh, And it was so like a gut punch. Like, so 
it, it, there was a, a number of different things happening at the time, including, you know, eating top ramen and crap food and mm-hmm. staying up late and, and not getting enough sleep. And I started to just feel like I constantly had like a flu like feeling. And um, so that just, and then you go to the the student health organization, they're like, well, you should just quit your job. And then that just actually added more stress because Mm -hmm. I didn't have any money. So it was this ball that started to to spiral. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I just uh, tried to, to, pretend it wasn't happening and tried to uh, find ways around it, which involved a lot of coffee and uh, a lot of uh, probably unhealthy eating habits and a lot less sleep. Um, But I I kept thinking that once I took the bar exam, once I got a job, it would all be better. And I just needed to get through this one little piece of time. And then, then uh, I'll be healthy and fine and law school stressful and, you know, you know, get through the bar exam and then everything's going to be just great. Yeah. 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 And what I also understand is that you're feeling bad. You're attributing it to stress and working hard and this is going to pass. But at some point you ended up going to campus doctors and you started being prescribed medications. And I remember they started to add up a little bit. Oh yeah. But mostly it was a feeling of, I, this is terrible, but I almost felt badly. Like you told me this, it was this thing, you gave me this drug and I feel so bad still. And I'm almost apologetically going back asking for some additional help. Um, And uh, you know, at that point they had me go to some mental health services because they thought maybe I just needed stress management issues, blah, blah, blah. But there was also some really real things happening. I mean, I had uh, the typical, you know, in retrospect, butterfly rash and, um, you know, uh, joint pain. And my, my hands would get so swollen that I couldn't type my exams and or mm. couldn't type my papers. And so then they would just give me hydrocortisone creams for my face and a bunch of um, steroids for my joints. And, oh, why don't you try some opioids too? Wow. Uh, so fortunate, I am really fortunate that A, I don't like whiskey and opioids don't really feel good in my stomach because there is a high probability I would have become addicted to both or all mm. if if that had made me feel better and I didn't have some sort of reaction to all of that. So I really empathize with anybody who has been given pain medications and has gotten addicted to them because especially during that time, they were handed out like candy. So, and you felt like the, that was the doctor (laughs) and the doctor knew best. That's right. Um, if it had worked for me, oh, I would have taken it. Sure. Sure. So you've got these symptoms that are mounting. Yeah. You're in a high pressure situation of, of law school. You're having to work and yet to share with your friends that you've got oh, this going no. on. 
that oh, no. w- that wouldn't work no, no, either, no, no, right? No, 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 no. Because it was it was a pretty competitive environment, and yeah. then um, it, during so I graduated from law school in 94, 1994. and during that year was probably one of the worst years for except for now lawyers to get jobs. And I remember um, we had a summer internship program, which was a big deal to even get, you know, at the time to be a second year lawyer going into a big firm. And uh, we had a a class of what we called it a class of lawyers, which is just one big interview for an entire summer, basically. And uh, I was the only woman in the group. And so there was no way I was going to let anybody see me sweat, as they say. And, um, you know, of that class, only half of us got hired. So it was a 50% retention rate. There was no, you could not, not uh, be 100%. And as a woman, I mean, there's no way I could have even said I had menstrual cramps. Yeah, of course. Of course. Wow. So to hide that, the shame of that, but the powering on throughout, and you've got at this point, as I recall, you've got rashes, chronic fatigue, this what you call mind numbing nerve pain, and this bone deep fatigue, and you're powering through at law school. I mean, I'm just amazed that you could hold it all together. Because I, um, I didn't do anything else. I slept. So when I was during my internship, uh, for law school, I, or during law school, uh, for the firm that I I joined, I literally would go home, go to sleep, wake up, go to work. And then we had this little like day bed for women who had menstrual cramps in the women's room. And Mm. I would take a a secret nap uh, during the day and hope that nobody noticed. And then I would sleep from Friday to Sunday. I just would sleep all, it was sleeping and working, sleeping and working. That was it. Yeah. Well, you had to, you had to. And it seems like you, you powered on until your mid forties. And it was like, I had to hide it. Yeah. And I felt shame about it. Like here I am, like everybody else has their shit together. Excuse my French. Everybody else is able to work a normal day. And then they go out for cocktails and they have dinner and they have families and they do pro bono work and they market clients. I'm like, how, I don't like, I, I obviously am deficient Mm. and sooner or later, somebody's going to figure that out. And I just got to hide it for as long as I can because I got all these student loans now that I need to pay. And um, I hate this work. I'm hating the work. I mean, how miserable is that? But in in many ways, if you looked at me from the outside, wow, she's a success story. Look at her. She got this job in this big fancy law firm. And uh, where a lot of my um, fellow students were still like, uh, you know, working almost as paralegals to, to pay their rent. So you were shouldering a lot. I mean, the sense that I get from your entire life is that you are incredible. You keep going no matter what until you can't. So let's talk about what happens because at a certain point in your forties, um, you said your pretending failed. 
Yeah, yeah. It turns out that is, it, and you're not even living, right? It, it, let's just put it that way. So yeah. um, I think that the short answer there was everything fell apart. So I had worked very hard um, and then had gone ahead and started my own law firm and uh, was in a marriage that was a bit stressful. Um, and again, I just felt like I was pleasing and trying to be perfect. And I also felt that anything that was wrong uh, in my environment at that time was my fault and that I needed to do something to change things, to fix it and make it right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I just could never quite get it right. I could never quite get my, uh, partnership with my law firm partner, right. I could never quite get my marriage right. And in retrospect, I'm like, well, of course not. You know, your law partner was embezzling from you and your former husband was a narcissist. You can't fix that. <laughs> and that did sort of all come crumbling together when, I, and I got very, very sick. And, um, the, and at that point, my law firm fell apart. My marriage fell apart. I was declaring bankruptcy. And um, then I got spinal meningitis. So that's kind of a low. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And um, I don't, if you go through something like that, it's a, a little bit liberating. And I, I don't know if I can quite explain it, but it's sort of like, well, here I am. Here are all my worst fears writ large. Yeah. Here, here it is. This is what it looks like to fail. And now what do I do? Uh, and at the time, um, because I was having so many health problems, and I got to tell you, it's the most frustrating thing. And I'm sure you can relate to this, Palmer. When you cannot get a diagnosis, when you cannot find somebody who can tell you what's wrong, and when you can't find that magical concoction of, of medications that will make you normal mm -hmm. and make you able to, to live the life that you see everybody else living. Uh, and so it, it really was a low point because I didn't even have the energy to get through the hard things that I was facing. And I didn't have any answers. I didn't have good um uh, I had almost conflicting diagnoses of what was happening to me. And I would go to different doctors and it's like, just you know, pick your poison. Uh, whichever doctor you went to, you got a different diagnosis, a different set of drugs. And the um, time frame for even figuring out whether or not they worked was so frustratingly long that it was hard to know, you know, whether or not any of these things were working or if they were just making things worse. Uh, because I have to tell you, during that time, uh, I was basically told to lie down and sleep. And I was taking so many drugs that to exercise would be hard on my joints and potentially really damaging to my tendons. Mm. I mean, think about that. That's yeah. So nuts. Yeah. So they're in all of that fog uh, and being now totally alone. So this is now, you know, I'm living alone with my two puppies and um, my kids are older at this point. So it's sort of like, well, you're going to live or die now because this is not a life. This is a half life. 
And fortunately, I had to I had to still take care of two dogs. Yes. And and I, I want to focus on that, but let's let's just picture this. So you are alone, you're in your cottage, you're by yourself. Oh, and, and, pro- and by the way, it's in foreclosure. Okay. So I'm not sure if I'm <laughs> gonna be able to keep my house. Okay. Okay. So you're I mean, it almost feels like that moment where you're on your knees because absolutely it's it's just rock bottom, right? And it's that moment, do I live or do I die? Because I don't know if it can get worse than this, right? I don't know if it can get and this, worse and, than and this. And that, that is sort of the interesting time because it's sort of a, well, this, if this is living, yeah, this sure doesn't feel like living. Yeah, I, I don't see a whole lot of joy here. This yeah. is a pretty dark place. And, um, and I'd also lost so much confidence because I thought I knew what I was doing. And I thought um, that I would be in such a different place in my life at that point in my life. And uh, here I am, like, I'm my own worst nightmare. So, and I don't even have the energy to do something different that day. So, um, so in, in some ways, like when you've got nothing left to lose, you got nothing to lose. You got nothing to lose. But you know what you do have is you got two dogs, Lucy and Ricky. I just yeah. love that. And you can't ignore the dogs. Yeah, they still have to go outside. They still have to go outside. And so, so, I, so tell me about Lucy and Ricky and what happened. So um, these are the, the puppies that all of us, I think, get at some point in time if we have dogs because our kids want them so badly and they promise to take care of them and be forever theirs. And of course, they're all your responsibility. (laughs) So uh, they are sweet. They are people-pleasing dogs. So I relate to them. Um, They uh, are, you know, sort of a a mix of Havanese, Shih Tzu, and Poodle. So I I lovingly call them a have a shit poo. Um, And so in order to not have a shit poo in the house, had to take them out from time to time. And, you know, it was uh, what saved my life because they needed to be outside and go outside and be taken on walks. And I had to walk them. And being outside meant you had sunshine and you had smells and, you know, that smell uh, right after the rain and it's green and you can smell fresh cut grass or there's, um, you know, blooms coming up. All of a sudden my life has been pared down to such simplicity that I'm paying attention now to this tiny, beautiful moment and the sun coming through the clouds and the feeling of sunshine. And I'm like, there's still a life to be lived. There's still a life to be lived. And so far, how I've lived it hasn't worked out, but that doesn't mean there isn't a life for me here. So let's look at this more holistically. I'm, I'm a smart person. You know, one of the great things my mom taught me was if you can read, you can do anything. Mm. So if you can read, you can cook. If you read, you can do this. And I remember in my 30s, I actually ran a marathon because I just read a book about how to do it. I mean, granted, I'm no big athlete and I 
am probably one of the last people to cross the line. But uh, if I, so I kind of went back to that basic thinking and said, you know, these guys, the, all of these women and men who've been trying to treat me are just using me as a human experiment. So they don't have the answer. So why don't I experiment on me? And let me, because of, of all those years of just not getting any good answers, um, what could be so wrong with experimenting with other ways of approaching this? So, uh, so I started just walking and I stopped taking the drugs that would make it hard to walk or damage my joints if I did walk. And there, I, I honestly believe, Palmer, that it's really hard to get out of a depression without feeling good physically. And there was something about getting outside and walking and then walking a little bit further and walking a little bit further. Cause it also requires you to start thinking about things and thinking about what you want to do next and not just lying down in a drug fog and feeling sorry for yourself or shameful that you got there or, you know, trying to just self-flagellate for all the choices you've made in the past, you know, walking forward is actually walking forward. Mm. So, um, I love that. that. (laughs) I love that. Well, and so it was, that was the beginning of my beginning, which was, Hey, okay. So what, again, what have I got to lose? So let's go to acupuncture. Who cares? Let's put some needles in my back. What's the worst that can happen? Let's start not taking some of these drugs and see what happens. You know, let's start uh, reading and reading and reading. And that's how um, I came into your book. And that really was, I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I'm like, Do, does she know me? Did she have a camera in my house? Because yep. all of the things that you were talking about, all of these different patterns, I'm like, that's me. And um, then I also started to get more involved in like a lupus community. And uh, so there were some things that were helpful, some things that weren't. I'm not saying I everything I did was helpful. Uh, I found that certain things were actually more depressing, like being a part of a lupus community. <laughs> Sorry to say that. Um, or at least that particular lupus community, uh, because it was um, really sad stories of folks who just were on the decline. And um, so it was great to read your book because it was these hopeful ideas and stories and, Hey, you can do this and, and experiment. So the next logical thing to do, since I'm doing some needles and some cupping and, incense and aromatherapy (laughs) other stuff that's nuts and some of it totally um humorous in retrospect so but all benign in 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 the big picture uh so that started the food vacation which i just absolutely hated (laughs) (laughs) yep and you did it but you did it anyway it was so and you, 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 this is what I want people to hear. It is hateful the first couple of weeks, right? You're probably cursing me as you're going. It was terrible. It was terrible. I hated it so much. And I, I did have some additional help because I, at that point in time, I had gone to see 
a nutritionist who was also a Pilates instructor. Because again, I'm like, if I'm doing this before they take all my money and my bankruptcy, I'm going to go hire some people. <laughs> there you go. Okay. And buy some books. And um, she, she kind of actually, she gave me some, some supplements to help me through too, which are in your book. But, you know, again, I'm always like, well, but that's for people who aren't overachievers, you know, vitamin supplements. That means they're not you know, sturdy enough or whatever. So fortunately I had a little bit of coaching so that I didn't, uh, so that I, I had some reassurance that this was normal and that it was going to be kind of not feeling great, but I'd already had spinal meningitis. So this wasn't going to exactly, <laughs> I, figured, I kept saying, oh my God, if I can figure my, if I can figure my way out of that, or if I can survive that sort of sensation, I can certainly figure this out. Um, so what happened as you, as the food vacation progressed, how did you start to feel as time went on? Well, um, well, I was mostly angry at first because uh, I, this, I, I, and oh my gosh, the cravings I had were nuts. And I felt ashamed about that too. Like, mm. I can't believe I want a Diet Coke so badly right now. Um, I can't believe that I never even knew that Diet Coke was so bad for me. I can't believe how much I want sugar, how much I want pasta, how much I want like, uh, and, um, and I didn't even know that I was so addicted. Um, but then, uh, you know, as the, the time went on, so I think it was around week three and a half, because you said do it for like four weeks. And I'm like, and I literally was counting the days. I'm like, if this doesn't work out, I'm having a tab and a Snickers. Um, but, um, literally like, I want to say it was at the <laughs> okay. end of all of that, all right. that I uh, started to feel great. And I started to have energy and I could concentrate. And I felt like I remember waking up and I, I'm walking around and my feet don't hurt. I used to have to kind of wake up my feet because they would take a little bit of time for them to, for me to feel them and to not feel pain. And it's almost like warming up a car. Um, but I'm like, here I am. I just hopped out of bed and I'm waking up my dogs to get them out because oh. uh, they're still sleeping. And, um, and then that's when I really got into cooking because I, I was like, there's something here. Of all the things I'd experimented with, this was the thing. And it also made me realize that I didn't have to do everything all at once. I could just take it one step at a time. I could just, let's just start with fortifying my body. And then we can worry about whatever cobwebs are in my brain. And then we can worry about, you know, the next thing or the next thing. And um, so that's what I loved about that vacation, because it was something very contro like controlled in the sense that I'm only doing this for four weeks. And if it doesn't work, screw it. It's not four months of taking some drug that may or may not impact my life or give me all kinds of other side effects that I didn't, uh, or direct effects, as you would say. Um, and uh, it also just really changed how I thought about my relationship to my body. It's a weird thing to say, but it reframed also how I thought about um, 
taking care of myself. And that taking care of myself wasn't about following some sort of prescription from some doctor, but listening to me, like I had Mm. the power to do this. It wasn't, uh, I wasn't powerless here and I had agency. I love it. I love it. That is so powerful. And at this point, do you start peeling back medications? I mean, it's kind of a seesaw, right? I mean, as you bring things down, you're able to heal with nutrition, which I mean, food isn't like medicine. It is medicine, right? When you're eating the right foods for you. So you're going through this experimentation on your own. And I would imagine that at a certain point, you're able to get off of some of those medications. Yeah. I mean, but I would say that the food vacation was just the beginning. It wasn't like I figured it out within four weeks. It was just a, a wake up call, like, whoa, this matters. And now I need to figure out the nuances of food. It, it wasn't. And it also, it had a weird psychological impact on me too, because I, I almost had to get over my sense of shame for how I had been eating Yeah, because the food didn't make me sick. But, or it didn't, you know, cause me to have autoimmune issues. Um, So I I had to get out of my logical legal head, which says if A is this and B is that, then C is da, da, da. So the the logic would be, had I always eaten well, I never would have had an autoimmune issue. Oh, yes. And so that sort of self-blaming cycle. So that I had to just put that aside and say, no. Actually, let's think about it differently. Let's think about this as bringing in the cavalry and reinforcing your body so that um, it's, you know, it, it is, you know, it's almost like putting in buttresses to a house that is, is, is crumbling for whatever reason. Whether or not you put the buttresses in doesn't make it crumble or not crumble, but it sure helps it stay stable. Right. So, um, so actually, I think my first year was really more about food than it was about medication, but really thinking about food differently. And um, I also, through this process, so all of this is sort of, a, a, it doesn't stop and start. I'm, I'm still working with my Pilates person. I'm still working with some food people and I'm feeling better enough now to work through my bankruptcy issues and to you know get a loan modification and keep my house and then uh, find some part-time work. So I'm working again, things are starting to come back in place and I'm feeling stronger and um, starting, and I found a good rheumatologist too, a supportive rheumatologist. And it really made a huge difference to have somebody who didn't just say, what you're doing is nuts, you know, your, you know, your joints are going to deteriorate over time. If you don't take all this crap and, you know, put, you know, here, why don't you inject methotrexate into your stomach once a week? And why don't you, you know, that's, that's the answer. Instead, I had somebody who's like, wow, you're doing really well. You're doing so much better than the last time I saw you. And um, we used to do this ring test. Like, can I wear a ring? Cause my joints would be so knotted. And the last time I'm like, look at this, look at this, I could wear a ring. And she goes, oh my God, you got engaged. 
So I also met this beautiful man and got engaged. And um, it, it, so I started the process of spiraling up and it began with just sort of that simple self-care and reframing it all. And it's not like there's this happy ever ending thing that I'm in right now. I am, I'm still in the process of experimenting and still finding what works for me and doesn't work for me. And um, I'm very careful with uh, coronavirus and staying away. But on the other hand, I mean, I always think there's another way of thinking about things too, right? So coronavirus means that the world is safer for me. People are wearing masks, you know, people are cleaning things more and um, we're all paying more attention to our health. And maybe that's a, a great thing. It's a great silver lining. Yeah. They can come out of a really hard thing. And, and that's what I think, um, I, at least I hope I can provide to others is that, yeah, you know, it, it it is hard and it is discouraging, but it's not the end. I mean, there's that wonderful saying that, you know, um, uh, you know, if, if you think this is all there is and it's the end, it's not the end. Yeah. I love it. Health is a practice. I mean, I didn't beat mm-hmm. the MS and that's it. I'm done. I mean, we continue experimenting and living our lives and, you know, managing the balance of things so that we can keep these things from coming back and expressing themselves in our lives. I mean, that is the best we can do. We'll always have the genes for these autoimmune issues, but they don't necessarily have to be expressed. And that is that's where your agency, that control and that empowerment comes in. And I, I just love, love, love your story. And now I, I feel like you are so passionate about food. I this know, is, really this is who you are. Food. I mean, it's really uncovered. I, so I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I would love for you to kind of, you know, help wrap this up with maybe three to five of your take-home messages for people, what you would recommend they do. It could be, you know, thoughts about food or any any direction you want to take yeah, it well, in. Well, first of all, read your book. That's a Aww. good idea. Start there um, because it does help reframe everything. And it, it's um, it's encouraging, but it also is empowering because you know that there are a bunch of different tools in that toolkit. So one of the most powerful things to me is, is food and, and having good food and enjoying food and having a delightful relationship with it. Um, because, you know, 10 years ago, I would never have allowed myself to eat like, oh, I'm just going to put a slab of butter in my coffee or have, you know, this delicious avocado and, you know, uh, uncured organic bacon uh, and some delicious eggs fried in butter. I mean, all of those things were sort of, oh, those are happening. But with all of those good, healthy foods, um, I've actually lost, do you realize I've lost 40 pounds since I started eating all this fat? (laughs) um, I love it. So, but, and I feel better energy's better. Um, and my hair's not falling out anymore. So that's good news. Uh, so there's, there's that piece of it, but I also think when you start with the basics, I mean, if you're taking care of yourself in the most fundamental way, when you feed yourself well, and when you get good sleep, 
I mean, that's what we do for babies, right? Mm -hmm. We make sure they're fed and clean and they sleep and start there, you know, start as if you would be parenting yourself and having an infant, uh, because in some ways we all have to learn how to do that. Uh, and, and it's really elemental and simple. Feed yourself well with foods that are good for you. And um, gosh, if I were to give any advice, it's like, don't be afraid of the kitchen uh, because it's, if you can read, you can do anything. And uh, if you can, uh, just get yourself the simple things. Start simple. Take it one step at a time. You know, somebody asked me once, well, what, what would you say is the most important thing to have in a kitchen? Because now I'm kind of known for all of my cooking. Um, and I'm like a good pair of shoes because you're standing around a lot. And the only other equipment you really, there's only four things you need for good cooking, by the way. Not that I'm going to go off on a tear here, but it's a good pot just one really good pot, a wooden spoon, uh, a sharp knife, and mason jars. That's it. So anybody can do it and uh, buy the best ingredients you can find. Your body's worth it. You spent all that money on prescriptions. Instead, buy really good organic olive oil. Mm. It's much better tasting for sure. (laughs) I love it. You are just a testament to healing with food and with your mindset. And by, I love the advice of just taking it one little step at a time, because that's exactly what you did. You walked first to the mailbox and then down the block and then maybe around the block. And, you know, these baby steps are just fine. As long as what you said earlier, as long as you're moving forward. And guess what? Even if you're faking it, even if you're doing it because the dogs need to go out, just start. And then slowly the mind will follow and the health will follow and the love will come and the passion will come back into your life. And suddenly you're living the life you thought you would have and never thought was possible. Mm. Hillary, I have chills going up and down my body. That is such a beautiful, beautiful story. And I'm just honored to be a part of your journey back to vibrant health. And it's not just back to vibrant health. It's bouncing back better than you ever were before. This is, you're not going back. Spiraling up. Mm -hmm. And thank you, Palmer, because your good work is part of the toolkit. Thank you. Well, I am so pleased to know you and be friends with you and can't wait to keep the conversation going. Thank you so much for spending this time with me today. All right. And I'll send you some recipes. Awesome. I look forward to it. Okay. Take care, my sweet. Take care. Bye. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, share it with your friends and family. And if you feel inspired, please leave a quick review so other people can find it too. Now, if you want to beat autoimmune and thrive, make sure you sign up for my free video training at freeautoimmunetraining.com. That's freeautoimmunetraining.com. And watch the first video right away. Take good care. Bye for now.